It's another episode of the Casey's Corner Podcast coming your way live today on this beautiful Saturday afternoon, this long weekend. Everybody's spending some time at the beach and all that good stuff. So we're going to change up our format a little bit today. Um, We know that there are so many people that are out and about and enjoying this long weekend and uh, this little bitty taste of normalcy that we've had for the first time in quite some time. So I'm going to be very short and very brief in my COVID-19 update today because I don't want people thinking about that and worrying about that. Um, Socially distance, do the things that you got. I don't need to coach you guys. You guys know what you're supposed to be doing out there. Um, So do those things, continue to do those things, and we're going to get continued progress. But I want everyone to um, relax, have a good long weekend, you know, get your mind off things. So we're going to have a short COVID update. And then we'll go on about our very busy show. We've got a lot of things planned for today. We're going to have a longtime high school football coach and track and field coach, Don Rodrigue. I I feel weird calling him Don Rodrigue, but no one calls him Don Rodrigue. We're going to have Coach Rod on here on the Casey's Corner podcast. Um, Terrific man, guy who's coached forever and ever locally. He's now retired, but he's still around. He goes to all the different games and locker rooms, and he meets with coaches and – we're going to have Coach Rod on to tell some stories about his career, and then we're also going to have him on to give the unfortunate news about the Louisiana Lineman Camp having to cancel for this summer. Coach Rod's a big part of the Louisiana Lineman Camp, so he's going to give us the news about that uh, and much more. I actually recorded that interview earlier today, uh, so you know I, I know exactly how it went down. It was very good, very open, very honest, talked about his career. Um, it was a great interview. Then a little later, we're going to have South Lafouche High School great athlete Rusty Bourne. Rusty was a phenomenal football player and track star, a state champion track star uh, in 2009 for South Lafouche. Uh, so actually, he was a track state champion in 2010. It was the 2009 football season. Uh, so Rusty is going to talk to us about his career. He's got an interesting story. You know, it was told early in his football career. You're not good enough to play offense. Um, you're too small. You're going to get hurt, or whatever it may be. Coaching change happens right before his senior season. And then all of a sudden, Rusty becomes one of, if not the best player in the state of Louisiana in his senior year, leading a team that was helpless and in need of a, of a jump start to one of the most magical seasons that they've had in recent memory. So we're going to talk to Rusty about all of that. So many stories we could share, so many different things we could talk about with him. Um, but in the first segment, as I said, a short COVID update, then we're going to talk about some things going on in the world of sports. There are, um, actually, you know what we're going to change. I'm going to audible on the fly and in, in the spirit of Peyton Manning and, and Tiger Woods taking on Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady, we're going to do our COVID update break, go to coach Rod break, go to Rusty Bourne break. And then we're going to end the show with our sports update. So, as promised, we're going to give you your new Louisiana updated COVID-19 figures. This is as of Saturday. There are 37,040 cases of COVID-19 in Louisiana. Um, that is up, not much, just a little more than 100 uh, from yesterday. But do not blow the trumpet and have a parade and have a first line in the street because we only added 100 more cases. There's a reason for that. Um, the state had a communication problem with the commercial labs so the commercial labs just basically didn't report today uh minus for a couple of um tests so we only had half the picture 
the state labs were able to go off without a hitch, but the commercial labs did not. So whenever they send in those results all tomorrow, according to what the state says, um, we're going to probably see a larger increase in cases tomorrow because you got to understand something. Um, they're going to be sending in two days worth of results. So if we're used to seeing that 300 to 400, you know, growth in a day, expect tomorrow to see, you know, 700 to 800. And that's, it's not a problem. It's not an issue. It's just the mere math of the situation, which is they're going to be sending in two days worth of results. So you could expect what we're supposed to see times two. So that's going to be coming tomorrow. Just a little heads up about that. Louisiana death total, 2,560. We've added 15 more since yesterday. Um, that has started to slow down a little bit. And I think that the sheer math of the situation is the fewer people in the hospital, the fewer people on ventilators, the fewer people ultimately are going to pass away. Um, so that number has slowed down a little bit. Um, it was once, man, uncomfortable, 60, 70, upwards of 100 a day. It's kind of leveled off now to that, you know, 15 to 30. And, you know, that's been good to see. It's another sign that we're trending in the right direction. As I've told you guys throughout the, you know, the onset of this show, the total case numbers really don't matter right now. Um, and I know people look at me funny whenever I say that. But man, we've been doing this for two, three months now. Um, so the, the total number, that's always going to go up. That's never going to go down. You know, it, the total is, is always going to be, at, you know, a high climbing, never changing number. The most important numbers right now are our recoveries and our numbers of patients currently in the hospitals. And our recoveries continue to go up. As we said in the last show, 26,249 patients have recovered. And that number is now a week old. So you figure it's it's upwards of 30,000 plus now that have recovered. So we're, we're continuing to ha be in that area of, you know, 5,800 to 6,200 people who currently actively have the virus in the state of Louisiana. That's a more realistic number. It's a less daunting number, and it's a more accurate depiction than this big 37,000 number that, you know, never goes away. And I think that a lot of news companies are doing a poor job of explaining that to people. Um, I... I don't want to knock on news companies uh, because I do enough of that on this show. But I don't know if it's just a lack of knowledge, a lack of understanding, or if it's just an intentional, you know, plan to try to invoke fear to increase ratings. But I do think that that's one area where news companies have, have failed in this pandemic is they've done a very poor job of explaining to people how many people actively have the virus as opposed to how many people in total have had the virus. So. I wanted to show you this, and this will be kind of the, the, the meat and potatoes of the update today. We have now been reopened for eight days. This is day number eight of phase one for Louisiana. The day that we reopened, we had uh, 1,091 patients in the hospital, and we had um, that number in eight days has now dropped by more than 200. It now sits at 836 patients in hospitals today. That's remarkable. Guys, in eight days, that is remarkable. In fact, let me go ahead and pull up a calculator, and I'm going to do the physical math to tell you how big of a percentage drop that is. I know I should have done this before the show, but I pull up now. That is a 23% drop in eight days, and that's at a time where we're, we're reopened. Like, that's, that's remarkable. That is tremendous progress. That is something that we should all be celebrating Um because it's showing that we're doing the right things. It's showing we're capable of getting this thing out of the window and, you know, out of the door. Um, a 23% drop in hospitalizations in eight days while increasing our social interaction is, is incredible. 
absolutely incredible. There are 112 patients on ventilators in the state of Louisiana. That number has kind of leveled off a little bit. Would like to see that get under 100 here in the next couple of days. But I guess time will tell. Um, in Region 3, uh, you know what? Before we do Region 3, let's get you your Lafouche numbers. In Lafouche, 766 patients have been diagnosed with COVID-19. Um, that number has actually stayed the same today in the update. But again, you know, bear in mind, uh, it was a very limited testing sample. 68 people in the parish have died of COVID-19. Uh, that number went up a little bit today, so that's unfortunate to see. In Region 3, we have 14 ventilators that are employed, 106 are available, um, so that'll tell you. In, uh, let, me, let me give you the Region 3 map. In Lafouche, Terrebonne, St. Mary, um, actually I pulled up the wrong map, one second. In Lafouche, Terrebonne, St. Mary, Assumption, St. James, St. John the Baptist, and St. Charles, there are those patients, all of those parishes that I just gave you, there are just 14 people on ventilators. So that would tell you that those are the numbers of people who are the most critically ill. Um, so in four, five, you know, six parishes, only 14 patients right now. Um, tremendous. That's great. That's great news. That means our death totals are going to continue to drop. And region three, by the way, is the region in Louisiana that has the fewest number of ventilators that are in use of anywhere else in the state um you know one other region region five has 16 employed but every other region is more than 20. we're the leaders right now with just 14 that are out there so that's great news that's great to see um our icu bed availabilities 57 beds are in use 42 are available so that's good news remember that number was at one time um in the 30s in the low 30s now it's gotten back up to 42 so that's good to see Total beds available, 374 are in use, 353 are available. Again, progress there as well. Remember that was once, you know, 400 in use, 430 available. So we've caught back up, gotten it back to about a 50-50 split. So, you know, the progress has been marked. Everybody's doing a wonderful job. Everybody's going to continue to do a wonderful job. And I, I don't see any setbacks on the horizon um, that will stop us from getting into phase two on the state's designated date, which will be June the 5th. Um, and then that would obviously lead towards high schools being able to, you know, open back up for athletic summer activities on June the, day, the 8th, that following Monday. And everything that, you know, the schedule that has been put in place seems to be, you know, completely on schedule. And everybody seems to be rocking and rolling and doing the things that are needed. Um, so I'm going to keep the COVID update brief. I'm not going to take any questions. Uh, we're going to save that for a later show. It's Memorial Day. Everybody's on the beach. Everybody's, you know, on the, the back patio or on the back porch and enjoying an adult beverage. And, you know, if you've taken the time to download this episode um, and you're listening on your, your your Bluetooth speaker on your phone or whatever while getting some sun or whatever it may be, I don't want to, you know, lessen the mood. I want everybody to be relaxed, calm, and know that we're trending in the right direction. So let's go ahead and catch a quick commercial break. When we get back, Don Rodrigue. And again, it feels dirty for me even calling him that. Coach Rod's going to be on the Casey's Corner podcast after this break here on LafoucheGazette.com. And this would be a good reminder to remind you about the Lafouche Gazette app available in all app stores today. Uh, just go to your app store, type LafoucheGazette.com. You get the latest access to all of our news that we're producing. You can get push notifications and anything that we're producing, we could send it to you on your app. 100% easy, 100% free. You don't have to do anything except go to your app store, type Lafouche Gazette, download our app. 
today. That's where you can get all the latest and greatest and stay informed with everything happening in our community. Again, it's the Lafouche Gazette app in your app store available today. It's the Casey's Corner podcast here on LafoucheGazette.com. We're joined on the phone lines now by my friend, Coach Rod, Don Rodrigue. Uh, Coach, how are you doing today? Well, it's a Saturday morning, and I'm writing up a few orders for Red Stick, and I'm, I mean, just just being around the house with my wife. I hear you, my friend. Look, you guys have made the difficult decision to cancel the Louisiana lineman camp for this season. Um, what went into that decision, and uh, you know, what were some of the things that, that caused you guys to go ahead and push it back a year? Well, listening to the, uh, Governor Edwards, all of his uh, phase one and phase two, what we can and can't do, and, and so on. Uh, listening to, you know, like I said, Governor Edwards, uh, the, the different phases, talking to the people at Nickel State University uh, about the dorm situation, the cafeteria situation, being safe, distancing, Tibetan uh, Regional Medical Center Sports Medicine on our on our uh, training side, uh, keeping up with them, uh, giving giving some ideas from Pete and I, Pete's talking to different uh, people in in, uh, in the sports world, and we find that look, we, we grudge to do that. We could have done it three weeks ago, I guess, but we kept on, uh, you know, uh, hoping that we could pull it off. But it came down to one denominator: keeping safe. And, uh, and so on. So uh, all we, we thought about uh, doing it, and if we would have maybe one one complaint or one person on our, uh, while they were with us, test positive, then that might affect us for the future. But the whole thing was being said. I understand that. And Coach, Man, a lot of folks don't realize how big of an operation this is. You guys have 500-plus kids from all around the country, and like it just would have been a difficult thing to pull off. Talk about the growth of the camp, man. This thing has become huge. Well, it started, the, 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 I don't remember right now, the summer of 86, the city studies. Bill Brickle was the head football coach. I, I was the assistant uh, an assistant defensive uh, line coach, or the defensive line coach, and uh, Kenny Farrell, uh, Pete Jenkins, and Jesse Daigle were all coaching at LSU, and they approached Coach Greco about having the camp at Nichols. And that first year, uh, we didn't know what to expect, and we had under 100 campers. We probably had about 8 or 10 coaches. And what Jesse Daigle was smart enough to do was uh, get like Mike Valerie, who was the head coach of Washington. Or Mike Ortego was coach around the Lafayette area. Carol Delahousa was in St. Martinville. Uh, and we had a few guys from New Orleans and, and so on. So that grew. And then the camp grew because by word of mouth. And those three guys coaching at LSU and going out. And you could go to a camp for all the skilled guys. Jesse Dago's son's a quarterback. He said it became somewhere. Jesse was an offensive line coach in high school and college. He says, I can't go nowhere. None of, no linemen can go anywhere but that. So that was the inception of the camp uh, way back then. And within three or four years, we were over 250, 300. And then, the, uh, again, we reached out to Texas. And we had some coaches from Texas that were bringing guys from Plano, Texas, Wichita Falls, Texas. And... Uh, and it, that word spread, and then 
about five or six years into the camp, we started both as uh, Nacogdoches, Texas, with Stephen F. Austin. And we did that for about 10 years. So we would, we would break down the camp on a Tuesday. That, uh, and then we would, we was leaving again that Friday and going, going to Texas. And, uh, right now, I'm the, oh, Pete Jenkins and I are the only two remaining guys from that first, first camp. And then Pete took, had to take some time off because when he was coaching at Mississippi State in Auburn, he wasn't allowed to, but the SEC had a rule that he couldn't come, uh, you know, couldn't go to another campus or hold a camp. So, Brad Villavasso was our defensive coordinator for a, a year or two. So, uh, that's, and then it kept growing. And then we hit 400. And then a couple of times we've hit 500. So, and it's, it, it, and it's, it's a work camp. There's no pictures with no head coaches. There's no eating pizza with, uh, with head coaches and recruiting. It's, uh, uh, it's, uh, Coach Rebo and his staff work it now. And, but that it's not what it's all about. The, the mission of the camp is take a high school player, make him better in the camp, for him to go back and uh, bring, you know, to be a better football player for his program and his team. So that's really the, the, the mission of the, of, of, the, of the camp. Very good. And, Coach, want to give our, our readers and our listeners a little bit of information about you. I know you've, you've coached for a ton of years, you know, 40 plus years in the area. Where'd you start out? Where are some of the places that you've been? Give us a rundown of your story a little bit. Well, I graduated from Thibodeau High in 67 and I was Nicholson at football then. And the coaches from McNeese came, came to, to Thibodeau and he would come to the house and he spoke French. So most of him, my recruiting with uh, Ernie Dubuchet was in French. And so I was hard for some people to believe. But So I went to McNeese and uh, redshirted my first year. And my last season of playing was 1971. Started off with uh, Jim Clark as the head coach and then Jack Dolan, who became the president of, the, of, of McNeese and then became a state senator. So uh, I had some good tutorage with, uh, with you know, with, with Coach, uh, you know, with Jack and so on. And I had uh, uh, Hubert Bowles was uh, my linebacker coach and Ernie Dumasher was my running back coach. And in my senior year, I switched from being a linebacker to a running back. And probably was the best move in my high in uh, college that helped me go forward in coaching. When I left my niece that season of 71, I went uh, coaching Lane, Louisiana for two years. Uh, with who uh, then was the uh, offensive coordinator at Lane. He took the head job at at, uh, at Lane, mm-hmm. and I was a young young guy. I mean, playing football and coaching football has some relevance, but coaching young men and drills and so on, you have to if you have a, you're around good people, you can learn the right way, and that's. That's not my story with with with, uh, with, with coaching in ring and so and so on was a great great experience. We took a team that was open ten. We went four and six, and we went eleven and two. And Lutcher beat us in the semifinals in in Rain, Louisiana that night. They ended up winning the state championship, and then I left them. H.L. Bourgeois second year. Don Schwab was the head coach, and I came the second year to Bourgeois. Stayed at Bourgeois for six years, six wonderful years. 
uh, in a new program and uh, learned a lot again. And uh, I was and back then, I was uh, I was a running back coach, and then I was a defensive end coach on, on defense. And you know, back then there was no term offensive and defensive coordinator. We all like worked together. We made a game plan, and then and then you know we fulfilled it. We were very successful under Don Schwab. At, at HL Bridge and LP Bullroll was our principal. But listen, I've learned this. If you have a good football team, you have to have a good principal. Yep. LP Bullroll was one of the finest men that I've ever worked for and allowed us to apply our trade and be and, and be successful. You know, you have to have tools to be successful the coaching knowledge, but there are some things the principals can do to help your program grow. And, and be successful. And then uh, Sonny Jackson got the head job at, uh, at Nichols, and uh, he called me up, and I uh, I left coaching for you. When uh, Russell Pierce came to, to, to HL, I, I decided I didn't like his philosophy, and so on. So, and so I went I went to the oil field for, for eight months. Sonny Jackson got the job at Nichols, and I was there for 12 years, six years with Sonny. And then six years with Phil Greco, and then uh, the, all the, the lines of communication and meeting all the high school coaches and all the coaching, going to clinics and meeting with uh, different coaches and different philosophers. And, and then when uh, when Phil, I was saying, I got fired. If you're coaching college, you're going to get fired. And then I ended up in St. James for 17 successful years with Rick Gale. And uh, then I went to Vanderbilt for three years. With Laurie Dupont, and we took took a team that hadn't been to the playoffs, and we went we went to the playoffs with, with those guys, and so we you know we we think we we uh, resurrected that program for those three years, and then I, I retired from that, and I went to work for Central Regional Medical Center uh, to start that program uh, on the sports medicine part, and then. They, they asked me to go out to the high schools and just tell them what we were doing, and that's that's what we did. And we built. There was Larry D'Antoni and I were the first two people hired at that program. And uh, after we got that built up and it's still going, you know, uh, I decided that I had enough. <laughs> I've been retired, and then uh, I was off for a few years. And then Red Stick Sports gives me a call and. It was a way for me to stay in the ball business, so I still go to practices. I still talk to coaches. I still go into coaches' meetings so, and selling products to the high school coaches. I met you during your time at Vanderbilt, and um, but I knew that you had been around for a while since then. How fulfilling is it when you take that group of guys that, you know, had been working so hard and then you achieve that, you know, that success, make it to the playoffs, whatever it may be. How fun is that, man? That that, that feels like a feeling that just would never get old. Well, I, I think my, my biggest joy in coaching is, is this. You get a young man that comes in as a freshman that that is he's a good ball player, but he has no technique and he has no direction. And you start working with him, and you give him all the tools for him to be successful. And then he starts applying those tools to eat. And you get 11 people doing that. I think that's the biggest joy of my coaching is taking a young man. I've had young men that made all district and, and even made all state. They're not, they're not college material. 
but they were good at what they did, and they listened to you, and you give them the fake report, and you get 11, 11 people doing that again, you can be very, very successful. You might not win every game or blow out people and everything, but to see the joy on their faces uh, taking themselves in, in the weight room the all season, building their bodies, building their minds, uh, pulling in one direction. I think, you know, that, that's the biggest thing in coaching. People think Friday nights is the, the thing that we, we all live for. But that Monday and Tuesday, the off seasons and the weight rooms and taking a young man or taking athletes to our coach girls practice and James and so on and getting them to be the best they can be. I think that's the, the, probably the biggest satisfaction for me was when they left you they felt good about themselves, gave them self-esteem. And when they, when you see them 15, 20 years later, and it says, Coach, this is my wife, these are my children, and he says, this was my coach, that's no better feeling to me of, uh, you know, of taking somebody. Even though I've had a young lady that ran track with her. She ended up in the military, and she wrote me a letter after she was in the military. She says, I still hear the words you're telling me about, you know, working to a point of exhaustion, but you can, your body can handle it, and you make your mind handle it. And when she went to the service, she says, I kept on hearing you telling me that. And she says, I had no problem. So uh, I still get goosebumps when I think about <laughs> stuff like that. And that, was a, that was a female athlete, and she understands what you do. And if you treat them, and you, listen, in coaching, you have to raise your decibel level of, of, of talking to them. But at the end of the day, after you got after them, if you hug them and love them, and they know it, after they know that you for them, uh, coaching gets easy. I mean, I, 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 that was the, the fun part about it. And you get old, you get old teams and old senior classes. And when you see them at ball games in the grocery stores and whatever in the community, and they, their moms are thanking you and they're going to stuff. I mean, that's the point. It's not only me. I mean, that's what, I mean, they're the Richard Curlin. How many guys have seen that? I mean, Don Schwab and, you know, Randy Boyd, Central Foods and, and all that. Rick Daly was a, Rick Daly, working with Rick Daly, Rick Daly was a master at controlling the minds of athletes. He played, he, um, he knew we were going to have a big game three weeks ahead. He was planting the seed before that, and that week, I mean, he would cultivate them, and then we had, we were successful with his method, but he was, he never played a down of, uh, Rick never played a town of high school football. He was a state champion golfer. He was a Louisiana amateur golfer. And I'll tell you a story, you say, you know, uh, the Philadelphia, uh, 76ers basketball player said, practice, let's practice. Well, Rick turned that into a positive. He put 10 balls underneath the goalpost with the team sit around him, around, he says, I'm going to take none of these balls and put it under the other goalpost. Well, and he hit 10 of them underneath the other goalpost. I mean, <laughs> he said, that's practice, guys. And it's it was something that, you know, I was very fortunate to be around good coaches all the time and good principals. And, you know, unfortunately, I was around some principal that didn't understand what it took to be successful, so... You would battle through it and keep your head up and be grinding. 
How much has the game changed? Because, I mean, I, I, I see it now from when I was a kid to now. The sport has changed so much, but you've seen even more of it than me. How much has the game changed? And then also, Coach, how much have the players that are playing the game changed? Well, in 1971, when I first started coaching, there was always two backs in the backfield, and most of the time, three. So your knowledge of stopping the run, you know, back then it was like 80% run and 20% pass and third and long. You know, as we went forward in the infection of 707, and younger coaches want to spray the ball around. And that's the thing. And if you're not willing to change as a coordinator to, to get into the 3-4 and the 4 threes and, and so on, but at St. James, we, we had to, when Randy Gross the one that brought the 3-4 uh, the to, to St. James with us, because I was a 4-3 guy and everything was running, all of a sudden, we played Evangel, we played Calvary Baptist, you know, and those guys, they would make you cover 52 yards of the field. Yeah. So we, we, we changed to 3 4, and we always were able to find a hybrid guy. And what I mean by that, he could play 3 4 and play a defensive end. And then if we went to, I mean, to 4 3, then we went to 3 4, he could go set up and be an outside linebacker. And still rush the pass and still cover guys. So when you have the luxury to do that, and I also think you you've got to be able to be able to stop the run because if when you go into the playoffs, you're going to run into somebody that's running some type of form of option. Option, and in the three four, it gets a whole lot more difficult to stop it. You can do it, but it you, you've got to teach a whole lot more. And on the college level, they got plenty of time to do. On the high school level, you know, I would, I did when we were playing against all those teams. I still never stopped teaching top the option because if we went to the playoffs and we ran into a team that was running option, we could go right back to it. There's no problem. We can answer the words and the terminology and responsibility of stopping the option because somebody's got to tackle the guy, somebody's got to tackle the. The quarterback and somebody's got to be on the pitch. So if you train them and teach them, and you play five spread teams in a row, then all of a sudden you got to go play an option team, and you try to teach it that week, it doesn't work. So we I, we always had that built in. I always had a ten minute session during the like, a Monday practice, even though the team wasn't doing, and it was a, with no uh, physicality, with no tempo. And get it done. So when it did happen, it was nothing for the kids. So, and I, I still think you still have to stop the run. I mean, those years when Evangel was at his best, you know, they all every year they had a, a D1 quarterback. We were playing that. There were seven years in a row in San James that we were good enough to win the state championship, and we we we, we either get beat by Evangel in the, in the dome or in the semifinals. And then when Calvary Raptors came in, and then we in the league with Curtis, now you're going to stop the option. You know, I guess Randy and I had to devise quite a few game plans. There were two games, the Calvary Raptors, and the head coach for Philadelphia Eagle, Peterson was the head coach, and we beat them like 40 to 14 or something like that. It was a game plan that we put together, and it, it involved the 3-4. 
and uh, we our kids just handled it, and you know we were successful with that. And then the John Bird, uh, I mean John, uh, that John Curtis game, we were in the same district on a Thursday night playing at Mons Bernalino Field in, in New Orleans. We beat them 16-14. They did not score a rushing touchdown. They threw two touchdown passes over our head. And I told the guys, I said, they can throw it over our heads all they want, but they want to run the ball. Yeah. So we stopped the run. They put some balls on the ground in the option, which they do, but they have, they're so good defensively. And then and Rick was was smart enough to keep the ball, keep grinding, take a few first down points, both play defense. And then we we ended up ended up beating them sixteen fourteen, but unfortunately, five weeks later we played them in the dome and they beat us like twenty twenty eight fourteen. Coach, um, do you miss it, man? I know you was telling us on radio earlier today that you're in your seventies now, but I, I know you're you're still very fit and you still get around. Do you miss it much? I, I miss the camaraderie of the Saturday morning game planning probably. The most when you're in the office with your with your with your defensive guys, and you Saturday mornings you get there, you look at your games in the final, you break down what you did good and bad, and you know what you're going to tell your players when you get them and all that stuff. Then you start working on the opponent, and you know you work for a couple hours, and all of a sudden now you're putting everything on the board, and well, to be there, I'll put it on the board. Everything is. Zoom and Skype and all this other <laughs> stuff. And you put your defenses up there and you say, okay, we can do this, we can't do this, we can do this. this is the defense and this defense. And all those three or four five guys together sitting in the room and getting the game plan. And then, you know, on Monday, I never finished the game plan. On Monday, we'd go out and run and we'd all look at each other sometimes and say, this is not going to work because of this. Because, you know, and Tuesday, we just find out the game plan. The kids uh, had it. And then them performing the game plan on Friday nights and that Saturday morning, you know, together, the camaraderie of coaches together in the world. Now, if, if you've ever been around coaches and in a meeting, not everyone agrees to everything all the time. Sure. So some, there was some yelling and some screaming and uh, you know, all that stuff. But when it all came down to it, you know, we had a game plan and go forward and perform it on, on Friday nights. And that's that's the part that I miss. That that camaraderie with coaches and you know, uh, when you're in high school you're gonna teach in the classroom, you're gonna be here and that's just being around the rest of the kids on campus, being around a faculty that's pulling for you and, 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 a, and a, an administration. That's that, that's the kind of thing that I miss. Last question before we let you go. How our Tigers and our Colonels are going to do this year? Well, Nichols, I feel sorry for Tim because he got three quarterbacks, I think, that, that can perform. You know, with the brand new kid from Dashland, uh, uh, the kid from Vanderbilt, Robinson, and, and Lindsey Scott. I mean, I mean, he looks like a college tight end. Yeah. I've been standing, you know, with the I mean, he is a, you're talking about a humble young man and can throw the ball. And I mean, all three of those guys have something to, to get to the team to be successful. And, uh, you know, that's going to be Tim and them's biggest thing. 
But Tim and I talked a lot about that. We said, Roger, miss all this. But just think when you played college ball, you you were going all summer, you came back, you got yourself in shape, and you played. And you were successful. So basically, you know, we've taken a simple part of the game and made it very difficult that we got to be there 24 7 to be successful. You know, so at LSU, defensively, they got player after player that can make plays. Offensively, you know, they, they got to build an offensive line. But in the quarterback, Brennan, I'm pulling so hard for him. And how successful he will be, he's got a bunch of new guys around him. And, but with listening to Ed and being around him, his driving force, uh, I think people are so not, they don't want to let him down. And that's one of the magics of coaching, you know, of being successful, is that the head man, the guys who are following him, don't want to let him down. And they're doing the right thing. Can you believe a college football team today, like what they went through, not one player was disciplined for anything altercations off the field. In today's modern football, when the guys took an oath, nobody's going to bars. In South Louisiana, I mean, that might be a magic a miracle. <laughs> but they all had a goal. <laughs> you know, it was uh, so uh, his leadership is, is unbelievable. I mean, he said it's unbelievable. And the guys around him, uh, it's, that's, I, I look for both of them to be successful. And we're hopefully, you know, Tim Reborn and the Colonels can drive up in the Tiger Stadium on that second quarter, whatever date it is. And we can have 100,000 people in the stands, but that'll be a long shot. I mean, you know, so, but I think I, I, I'm just looking at a lot of success because Tim's got it going. I, I, I'm around him a lot at practice, and Tim is a lot like Rick. He plants seeds and he talks to the guys. They don't want to let him down. They don't want to disappoint him. And this coaching staff at Nichols, Hardly anybody ever leaves it. And there's a reason why for that. And when you're in one double A ball, you know, he's had a defensive line coach that went to a Division I school. And uh, he, he had a, uh, okay, he was a running back coach. He's filled in with some great guys, great young guys, but all pulling in the same direction. Well, Coach, thanks so much for the time, man. And we look forward to doing this again soon. No problem, Jason. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. That was Coach Rod spending some time with us here. Let's go ahead and catch a break. When we get back, Rusty Bourne will be joining us here on the Casey's Corner Podcast. We'll be right back after this break. LaFouchegazette.com is your home for all the latest happenings in the LaFouche Parish efforts to fight COVID-19. Every single day at noon, we have a new story with all the updated numbers, and we give um, you know all the latest figures, and we keep you informed. So that's LaFoucheGazette.com. Visit us today for all the latest in the fight in the state of Louisiana and in Lafouche Parish against COVID-19. It's the Casey's Corner Podcast here live on LafoucheGazette.com. We want to thank Coach Rod for joining us in the last segment. Now we go to the phone lines where we have former Great South Lafouche High School standout athlete and state champion Rusty Bourne on the line. Rusty, how are you, man? I'm doing good. How are you? Good. Doing fine, buddy. Um, Look, we wanted to have you on. Uh, because you've got one amazing story to tell, um, and I, I, you know this is uh, something I'm looking forward to doing. 
Um, so one of the questions I had for you, Rusty, is is at what age did you start, you know, playing sports? And I, I know this is something you've done for, you know, a lot of your life. At what age did you really start getting into it? Um, I got into basketball around seven. That's when I would say I really got into it. My mom didn't let me play football because I was too small, so started off with basketball. Okay, and, and from what I understand from, from watching you play basketball as a kid, uh, you had some success right away, won some trophies and everything like that. Um, to talk about, you know, some of your young days playing sports. Did you realize at a young age, hey, you know, I'm pretty doggone good? Uh, actually, I didn't really think I was good. I knew that we had some good teams growing up, and I played with a lot of good people, like Ryan Lede, Josh Baldo, Cameron, some real good people, and it was just fun. I really had a lot of fun playing basketball. That's what was really the big part. Okay, so talk me through when did football come into the equation? Did you start in high school? Did you start in middle school? When was the first time you put the pads on? First time I put the pads on was eight years old. I begged my mom to play when I was seven, but they got me some pads and all. We put it on. I stepped on the scale. I was 50 pounds with all my pads. <laughs> my mom talked my stepdad out of it. So I just played basketball. Then eight year, when I turned eight, my stepdad was like, look, it's just – let them try it and i had fun i started off on defense i was playing middle linebacker had fun and then eventually at the end of the year i got to run the ball and that was the first time i got the ball in my hands at eight years old so do you remember the first time you scored a touchdown when was that tell us about that oh first time i scored a touchdown was uh in the playoffs i mean in the super bowl i was eight years old we lost to the tigers the wing right, reverse left. I, I got it. I took it like 50 yards. But I, was, I was even in the newspaper. My first touchdown was in the newspaper for holding the ball wrong. <laughs> so you, you go to, to, to Golden Meadow. Um, talk about your time in middle school. How many sports did you play? How'd that all go, you know, playing middle school ball? Oh, middle school was fun. I played basketball 7th and 8th grade, and I played football 8th grade. I was always more focused on basketball because, I don't know, I always felt like I wasn't as good, so I had to practice more, so I focused more. Seventh grade was, it was fun. You know, it was a learning experience. Didn't really play much, which was really expected. We had a real good team. We competed in eighth grade. I ended up trying out for football. We was a, we had a good team. We only lost, we lost two games. We lost LCO. We lost to Trevon Reed from East Thibodeau. Just can't be mad at that. Yeah, no doubt about that. Now, you get to high school, um, and early in your high school football career, um, things didn't necessarily go the way that you would have hoped that they would have went. Uh, not de- definitely not as you know compared to your senior season. So, what happened early in your high school career? Tell us a little bit of that backstory, and you know some of the things that that didn't go your way, so to speak. Well, freshman year, I played football. I tried out for wide receiver. And I, I was starting wide receiver, and I was starting corner. And then I was, we were playing all good. Then one of our running backs had got hurt, and I was supposed to start running back that game. And on a defensive play on the first drive, I ended up getting hurt my freshman year. So I missed part of my season. And I guess in the back of my mind, you know, getting hurt in football and not knowing what was going to happen in basketball where I really had more of my focus. At the time, I was like, 
I just kind of t- ended up taking a back seat to football because I wanted to play running back. The coach didn't want me to. He wanted me to play defense. And in my experience, at 12 years old, I broke my collarbone playing defense. And my freshman year, I hurt myself playing defense. So, like, I wasn't real big on playing defense because I wanted to play basketball. I didn't want to – in my mind, like, if I played defense, I was going to get hurt. That was just my most vulnerable. So, I wasn't really big on defense. I ended up just playing basketball instead. My junior year, I ended up losing the, uh, the point guard's job. And I was just like, maybe, you know, basketball is just – you know, like, I'm a role player, but, you know, maybe I need to take another sport, try something new, which was nothing wrong with that. I tried out. Coach uh, Scott Sanimo came up to me. They had seen me jump in a, uh, in a basketball game and wanted me to try a long jump. And that's what really got me hooked in the track because I, I really liked the idea of jumping. I wasn't a big fan of running, but jumping sounded really fun. So I didn't realize this until you just said that. And we're going to talk about, you know, all the wonderful things you did as a senior here in just a second. You didn't start jumping until you were in 11th grade? Yes, sir. Wow. That, that, that's crazy. And then, you know, that's going to even add an entire different element to the story we're going to tell in a minute with all the, you know, the, the championships and everything. So we go to your senior year. Um, there's a new football coach. Coach Farmer comes in and um, – I remember vividly uh, everyone was kind of down on the program. You guys had been losing and, and had not been competitive and, you know, things were not going well. Um, so what led you to make the decision to say, you know what, to hell with it. I'm a senior. I'm going to go out one more time for football. What led to that decision? Well, it was really like, in my mind, this might be the last time to ever play football. Well, in my mind, it was going to be the last time to ever play football because I wasn't thinking about anything after high school. So I was like, man, like, I knew I loved football, you know, basketball. I tried the basketball thing. It really didn't work out. I did really good in track. So I was like, you know, might as well play football my senior year. Me and a few other guys like Josh, Bobby, and Caden, who had grinded all summer, like summer basketball and all, was like all decided, like, hey, our senior year might as well you know it'd be fun we might regret it if we don't we all ended up going out together and trying it out so at what point in the summer um you know you guys are doing preseason camp and everything at what point in the in the summer did you guys sort of have the idea of man things are way different and we about to bash people's brains in or did you guys not realize until you actually started doing it well actually my junior, the senior year, we didn't really have a summer. Like, we did workouts, but without being the head coach, it kind of wasn't mandatory. Because Coach Former maybe came in a month before school started. So our junior, senior summer really wasn't, like, it wasn't much. We That's why during our year we had a limited playbook. We, we was really limited on what we could do because we didn't have all summer to learn the playbook, to learn new schemes. We just... We really had maybe two months, if that, probably not even that, because Coach Former came, he came right before school started. I'm, I remember we were, our first week of practice was supposed to be for Tarpon Rodeo, so Tarpon Rodeo is at the end of July, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And that was the first time we was, as a team, what our coach was going to do something for Tarpon Rodeo weekend. And, and you know, you, so we... I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, we, 
So we really didn't know what to expect, you know, during the season, what was coming up. We probably, when we played, I think, old Perry Walker in the scrimmage and we won 6 nothing. I think we kind of knew that, hey, we really, you know, we got a lot of raw talent on the team if we could get this together. And at what point did you sort of realize in terms of, okay, you know, you'd played for Coach Wonstell, didn't, you know, go as the way you wanted it to. At what point did you realize, hey, this coach is different and, you know, he's he's going to give me some opportunities that maybe I wouldn't have otherwise had? Oh, I realized that right off the bat. Coach Forma, he came in with an offense and his offensive, he, he's an offensive mastermind. He different offenses to different defense we play in. Like, we could run the spread. We could run the power. You know, we could run wing T. Like, we we ran it all my senior year. And, like, he put people in positions to succeed. And, like, it was – that like, they had a lot of people our senior year that did, you know, that, like, excelled well in the offense because we really had a good offensive team and really had good, great players running it. Open up the season, take on Warren Easton. Um, I was actually at that game, beat him seventeen to six, kind of a sloppy game, but you guys get the win. And and for a program that had been struggling and had not won very much, to start off and be one and zero and have a winning record, and I'm sure that was a pretty good feeling for you guys to beat a very athletic Warren Easton team. Oh, it was amazing. We were we were so pumped. Like it was. It was really fun. Like I, it was the first time I had won a game in football in a long time, and like I forgot how much fun like playing football actually really was. And we were all excited, and we were all hungry. Like all, we all wanted more. You know, like we didn't want to just win the one game, or you know, two or three. Like we wanted to. We had a goal. We wanted to win district, and like it starts in the beginning. We. In the beginning of the season, we had to like lean on our defense a lot, which we did a lot during the season because our defense was amazing. And with our defense not letting people score, it really was easier during the beginning, like the beginning of the season before our offense really started rolling. We really got to start opening up the playbook. Our defense was just, man, so, so great. Beat Frederick Douglass the second week, 34 to nothing. But in week three, you guys suffer your only regular season loss against E.D. White. If I'm not mistaken, it was a game that went to some overtimes and some crazy stuff happened. Um, Coach Former has since told me that he believes that game was the best thing that ever happened to you guys because he said it kind of refocused everybody, got everybody's attention, uh, and it made you guys angry. Talk about that E.D. White loss and, and everything that went with that. Yeah, the E.D. White, that was a tough week. Like you said, we had won the Douglas game, but – Winning the Douglas came game came at a cost. We tore up our field, and our field was wasn't in any shape. And like if we we knew that if we played against E.D. White on our field, that our field might not you know ever get better till late late in the season. So we decided, Coach Foreman decided we played it at Nichols, which kind of gave you know E.D. White the home the home advantage instead of us, which was fine. It was. It was all good because it was a nice experience to play at Nichols. Even though it didn't end like we wanted, it was a grindy game. It was like one of them games that you grow from, you know, like double overtime, going back and forth, losing. I'm pretty sure we lost. Like we didn't score the two point conversion. So it came down to like to the last play of the game, and we grew. We grew from that, and 
we came together as a team. We didn't fall apart, and we decided, like, you know, that losing was not fun. The three wins or the two wins we had before that was was way more fun than the loss, and we didn't want to feel like that for the rest of the season. We were trying not to, so we just – I feel like we, we did grow as a team a lot during that EDY loss. Beat Vanderbilt, beat Terrebonne, get rolling. Uh, at what point did you guys start to start to feel like and at what point did you think the community start to feel like, hey, these guys are really good? Because I remember at the beginning of the season, you guys went in a couple of games and everybody was kind of saying, oh, well, they're not playing anybody good. You know, the, Frederick Douglass isn't any good. Warren Easton isn't any good. At what point do you sort of feel like the community starting to buy in with you guys and, you know, this sort of big explosion started to happen? I would say, honestly, by the first district game by Terrebonne, like, I, that's when I started noticing the crowd. Like, I started noticing people traveling. I started noticing, like, people I knew, like, haven't seen in a while coming out, supporting, screaming my name, screaming the team's name, coming out. And, like, that Terrible game, Terrible was a good team. Like, they were, they were a real good team. They had some athletes on that team. And we grinded it. Um, with pretty sure it was a 17-14 point game. And I feel like when we beat that team, like, we knew that, we we had a real good team. Like we had a like we could win district. We could play with anybody in the district because Terrebonne was really athletic and like they had some athletes. They weren't no pushovers. They spread the ball. They threw it. They ran it. That a you know they had an all district running back that could could have been all state and Dominique. Like they had the whole game. They had defense, safeties, and it wasn't an easy game. And I'm pretty sure that was our first district game. And they were, they were real athletic. We that was a real battle. I'm not gonna lie, terrible stuff. At what point in the season, because you had all these big stats and everything got rolling, at what point in the season did you realize, hey, like, I'm the fastest dude out here, and when I get an open space, open space, I'm gonna break tackles and I'm gonna score touchdowns. At what point did you realize, hey, I got the stuff here, man? Well, I didn't realize that I was doing anything until the somebody from the newspaper came talk to me, and I didn't. I was wondering why they wanted to talk to me. But then he started saying, like, how I scored touchdowns and from how far. And I was just like, it never, like, I, I never really looked at it like that. As in, like, when I'm playing, I didn't notice, you know, like, oh, it's a 60 yard touchdown. It was just, we were just playing. We were living in the moment. And it was just, like, I never realized that specifically was doing anything because. I feel like we were all doing everything, you know, like we were all just one unit just playing so good together that I never really looked at it as an individual thing or like back at what I was doing. Like I just looked at it as what we were doing and how we were playing as a team. Because, I mean, I I did score long touchdowns, but at the same time, Justin Gouger ran the same amount of yards as me, you know, just grinded it out more. Like it was, it was a, Everybody ran the ball, so I don't, I, don't, I really never just paid attention to me. No, that's awesome, dude. And you already touched on how terrific y'all were on defense. I mean, 13 points is the most y'all allowed in a regulation game. But another thing, man, you guys had some mules up front, bro. You had some holes to run through. You had some great players blocking for you. And I think one of the, the aspects of that great team that a lot of folks forget about is how good you guys were on the offense and defensive lines. I don't think people realize how good our, our O-line and defensive line was. Like, they were 
they were the main reason we were good. Us, that's the re- they were the reason our linebackers got easy tackles. You know, they were the reason that I could score from 70, 80 yards. You know, when you're running through a big hole and, you know, like they did their job and all you have to do is your job. And when my job is just to outrun people, you know, make someone miss here and there because they're doing their job so good, it makes it tremendously easy for me. You know, not get in touch till 10, 15 yards down or our D-line stuffing them up the middle where they can't run. Our linebackers are, fit, you know, flying, filling gaps because our D-line is just – we had – there was so much talent on the O-line and D-line. Like, we played the Douglas game without our best offensive lineman, Rafe, and scored 34, I'm pretty sure. And Rafe was, in my eyes, the best lineman in the, in the state. Like, I think, you know, Rafe could have went play anywhere college – Ray, I think, in my eyes, Rafe was really that good. I played with Rafe since I'm eight years old. Rafe always blocked for me, and I've never, ever been scared to run because I knew I had Rafe and Brody Terrebonne since I'm eight years old blocking for me. And it makes, you know, it gives you a confidence when you have people like Brock Holbert, Rafe, Brody, Dylan, Donnie. You got people like Jesse Adams and Russ, big people, Mark Mayberry. Jared Billiard, like you got those people like Roger Dowdy that'll give us all 100% every play on the D line. Like that's just, you, it's successful. You start winning games and stuff comes together when you have an O line and D line that do the dirty work very well. And like people just don't, like everybody's like, oh, you did this, you did this, I scored a touchdown. But don't, people don't realize I was running behind a great O line, probably in my eyes, the best in the state. Like easily, like they never had a game where I feel like they were dominating. Yeah, I just feel like we had a great O line and D line, and it it showed. So you said after the Terrebonne game, you guys really got confidence, and it shows. You killed South Terrebonne, killed HL Bourgeois, killed Assumption. Then you get the the two Parish games, home against Thibodeau. Uh, that was a close, hard fought game. I know there was uh, the very talented group on that Thibodeau sideline. Talk me through that Thibodeau game where you guys get the win, twenty four to six at home. Or the Thibodeau game, that was a tough game. We knew we needed to win that. And I think that was probably – we were focused. We were laser-focused for the Thibodeau game. We we didn't know if Trevon was going to be playing, which obviously makes a difference. And he ended up not playing. And we just we just wanted to establish our run game because we had to. It was muddy. It was a sloppy game. Our defense showed up, played amazing defense, which – you know, makes the offensive job a lot easier. You don't have to get in the end zone or put up as many points when your defense is just playing amazing defense, which, you know, sometimes can be hard when it's a bad weather and there's mud everywhere. And if you have a good running back, you know, you can slip on defense. But our defense played real great. They didn't get a lot of points up in our offense. Just We just grinded it out, ran the ball behind our big old line and let our old line just lead us to victory. Really, our old line won us that game. They just opened up holes, and we just got to march down the field, march down the field. So I was a senior in college during this year, and I got hired to work in Homa out of graduation, which would have been in December of '09. And I actually started a little bit early in November of '09. And the first game that I ever covered was you guys going to Central Lafouche and ending the regular season. And look, I was following you guys from afar. And I knew that the team was having some success. But I didn't realize, like I pulled up to the stadium 20, 30 minutes before the game, 
and it was completely packed and everybody was wearing white jerseys or white shirts and everything like it was it was like a college like atmosphere the first thing i said whenever i got to the stadium was oh my god look at the support what was it like for you guys playing that central lafouche game where you're on the road but it's unquestionably a home game for you guys because there were so many the entire south lafouche community was there in matthews with you guys that night Oh, that was that was the greatest game I ever played in. The feeling was just you look up and all you see is white on your side and it's just people standing on the track. It was just like I can't even explain how I felt to play in that game. That game was amazing and it was central. It was you know, you arrive with your the team you look forward to beating, you wanna beat all season. It's just that game was that game was amazing. That's the funnest game I've ever played in. Yeah. That was, like, I can't even describe it. That was walking on air. You had a play early in that game where you got the ball and then you kind of reversed your field and went to the strong side of the field and broke one long, and the place went nuts. Like, that's got to be an adrenaline rush like no other when you're, when you're experiencing that. Oh, yeah, the adrenaline rush was – like, my dad from Central – and my mom's from South, so like my first cousin plays for Central, and he graduated with me, and we competed our whole life. But she stopped playing football. But like, just the fact that he goes to Central is like we don't ever want to lose to Central, and it's like so like having family on both sides of the field at that game was just I was man I wanted I wanted to make an impact so bad because you just don't want to lose to Central, you know my. O-line gave me a whole wide cut back, and, man, the crowd was crazy. They just – I remember my adrenaline pumped so much for that play that I was out for, like, two drives after that because <laughs> I couldn't walk. I was just shaking. Now, you guys play them again the first playoff game, and I remember on that Wednesday talking to Coach Farmer on the phone, and I was asking him, I said, hey, look, you know, it was 21-3. to It was a close, hard-fought game. And then he said – you ain't got to worry about this. that this time. We're, we're going to kill him. And sure enough, you guys get him into the playoffs, and you put it on him pretty good. What was different between that, that second game compared to the first game that you guys were able to put such a big number on him? Oh, well, it was some strategy, no doubt. Coach Farmer called before we played Central that we were going to play. You know, I wasn't 100% sure, but there was a great chance that we played Central first round of the playoffs. So playbook was a little – you know, we, we did well. We have a great defense. Like, with our defense, it's like it all comes down to your defense and your O-line. Your defense, our defense was so good, and our O-line was so good that we didn't have to stretch out the playbook. We got to run the ball, just do little stuff here and there. Our defense did their job. And then the next week, you get to open the playbook because, you know, they don't, they don't have film on you. It's just, oh, they're like, oh, they do this. You know, they run the ball here. This is what they do. And then... Your defense is still going to show up, but now you got a whole offensive playbook to play with. And they think you do one thing, but now you got plays from the back of the playbook that you can pull out that they're not expecting, which we ended up having. And we ended up scoring a touchdown on them on a play that we drew up from watching them, not giving them too much, and exposing their weaknesses. So the next week, you guys get uh, a very tough draw. Got to go on the road, take on a Westgate team that – was much better than what their seed indicated. They kind of got a slow start, whatever it may be. They caught fire. Um, it felt like one of those games, man, where we were just kind of in quicksand throughout the game. 
Uh, I was at that one too. Uh, rough start, never kind of recovered. What went wrong against Westgate? Westgate was just, I don't know. Westgate was just really good. You can't take it away from them. I feel like, I don't know, first place, it looked like it was going to be a long touchdown and it just got called out of bounds. And it was just like, you know, next play was a fumble. I ended up fumbling and we recovered, but it's like, it's like we never got no, you know, like no, we never got rolling against them. Our defense played well. Like it wasn't like our defense didn't play good. It was our offense. Our offense just never got rolling. They'll put, you know, you got to give credit to Westgate. Westgate was really good. Like, like you said, their record and because Westgate ended up winning the next week and ended up losing to Rumble, pretty sure by six. So like Westgate wasn't no scrubs. Like Westgate, they were good. We just our offense really never got rolling, and you know we just fell behind and. They just did their job. We gotta tip their hats to them. I remember as soon as that game went final, uh, you guys were walking back towards you know your locker room in your end zone, and the entire crowd that was there for South Lafouche that night gave you guys a standing ovation. And on the one hand, I'm sure you were devastated because your senior football season had been ended. But I'm sure now, many years later, looking back, you could realize how awesome and special a moment that is. That even though you guys had been beaten. The entire community was there, had your back, and they were proud of you guys for making it as far as you did. Oh, yeah, it was amazing to see the fans at the end of the game. Like you said, like, you'd be devastated and you're sad and, you know, you just don't want to be around people. But on the other hand, it's like you got this amazing crowd that just up, uplifts you. And it, no matter how mad you are, how devastated, it's like you can't help but feel good that you got support. And it was a far drive, too. It's not like it was just a home game or it was – multiple hour drive and you got a bunch of people there supporting you win or lose it just felt good it was just i feel like salafouche has die hard fans you know they they really do and like people look forward to salafouche sports and they show it you know it's just it's just awesome to see them support you like that it's like just not only when you're home but when you're away and you're traveling and you know that people have lives, but yet they still set time to travel and support you. And it makes you feel good. It makes you want to, you know, perform good. Did you play basketball as a senior? Yes, sir. Okay, how how'd your senior basketball season go? Senior basketball season was, we started off slow because, you know, most of us, I think it was, what, four, five, all five starters were playing football. And we started off slow. And then we hit a win streak. Like, we got rolling. Went to the EDY tournament, won the EDY tournament. And then our one of our star players, Josh Bago, rolled his ankle. He was going to be out for a while. Then next tournament, we go to the tournament, East Ascension tournament. Cameron rolls his ankle, another star player. And Caden Sheridan, the second game, rolled his ankle. And we just... We had three, I mean, three of our basketball stars hurt at one point. And it's just, especially with Caden and Josh, you know, both being hurt at the same time. It was, it was tough. It was real tough. We battled through injuries. We came out second in district. We lost, uh, district was won by Thibodeau with Sugar, Trevon, and them, which we had a chance to, we had a chance to take it just, with the injuries throughout the season, I feel like after the injuries, we never got rolling again. We played a great team in the playoffs. Their, their starting lineup was 5'8", 6'3", 6'6", 6'8", and like 6'4". 
and they were just way too big for us. I hear you. Now you moved from basketball to track and um, I'm sure that, that you had some big goals for yourself at track, but did you ever have any idea that it was going to go like this? I mean, what were your goals going into your senior track and field season? Oh, senior track season was, if I didn't win state and long jump or triple jump, it was going to be a letdown season. But that was between just me and Coach Charlie. So my senior year, I was I was going for state champion for uh, long jump and triple jump. I wasn't trying to get anything less than that. I remember at that point covering some of those meets and like – early in the season man like you were jumping out of this world i mean just just cruising and and i i mean i'm not a big track and field guy so i don't know what's good and what's not good but they're telling me that you know you're breaking records and doing this that and the other um and then you get to the regional meet and you got to jump against a guy by the name of teron matthew and teron matthew's now an nfl star he's a great athlete i remember he was excited and and you know he was had a little cockiness to him and you beat him uh, you know, obviously at the time you didn't know he would be a future NFL star, but to, you know, win district and regionals and, you know, all those little things adding up, I'm sure you were getting very confident in what you were doing. Oh, I was real confident. Like, it, to be honest, I didn't even really know who he was. When I went to the track meet, people started, like, saying, like, oh, he got a scholarship for LSU. He got a scholarship for LSU. And, like, the only thing in my head was, you know, his scholarships for football you know like this is you know just in my head it's just not football this is track and I'm pretty good at this just like he's pretty good but the thing is with track is like anybody could lose on any given day but you kind of have like um like you kind of know what people people are capable of because they keep records all year of what they do and it's like it's an individual thing so if somebody's jumping a certain amount it's usually like you could have a range of how far they could usually jump. So it's like I kind of knew how far he could jump and how far the other people could jump before the track meet would come along. So it was kind of like it wouldn't like I wouldn't be as nervous. I'd be like I'd be more confident, I could say, because I would know how far people jumped before I actually even happened to get to the track meet. So go to the state meet at LSU. That was another one I was fortunate enough to be at. Um and you know there's a lot of buzz you know there's a lot of folks that are wanting to watch your events and man you jumped like a frog at the state meet you you were you know really putting on a show um talk about you know your focus where you amped up were you a little bit nervous and then how'd you perform oh i was super amped up i was i was actually so amped up that i ended up getting looser than i usually do and i was my first two jumps, I actually P-laid because I was overextending my stride. So we were just, Coach Charlie screamed from the top, you know, told me to calm down and just, you know, get a jump for placement, you know, just get a jump so you get on to the next, you know, to the next uh, heat. And I ended up flying the first jump I hit. And it was, it just felt good. Like after I got the first jump, out the way I felt so relieved and like I kind of like took a took six inches back on my uh on my measure because I was opening up too hard and it just kind of fixed itself and I was just flying it was that was the furthest I ever jumped and 
the crowd was just crazy. Like LSU, like LSU, that little stadium place is just crazy. It gets so loud. And it was a good feeling. So you win two goals. You win the long and the triple. Um, and you know you're standing up there on the top of that little podium, and uh, you know they're all taking pictures. And I, I remember I still got some pictures from that day as well. Man, you got to be thinking to yourself like, okay, I'm, I'm a you know little guy from the Bayou, and you know I I, I didn't have any you know idea that this was going to happen, and then all of a sudden, boom, out of nowhere, all this craziness happens, and you know my senior year. We're going to the basketball playoffs. We're having an amazing football year, and I'm now a two-time state champion. Like, so much happened for you in such a small amount of time. It really did. Like, I went from being a backup basketball player to actually, I think track was just, track was the most fun I had. And it was a lot at the time, but, like, at the same time, like, I don't I don't know. I really just didn't look at it like that. Like, I, I was just living life. Like, I wasn't. I never looked at it like as I couldn't do it because I always, from the moment I my first track meet, I jumped, I won. I mean, I didn't win state as a junior, but like I was always had a, the confidence that I could win. To win two of them though was like it felt great. I didn't think like I didn't think a hundred percent that I would win at the beginning of the season, but like the finals finally accomplishment was just. I don't know, it was just amazing. Like track was track was a lot of fun. Now I liked running with my teammates. You go on to the next level and play some football. Um what was that like? Uh talk to us about, you know, how this school found you, uh how how you ended up there and tell me a little bit about your freshman season. Well, I was it was late in the school year. I was just chilling one day with a couple of homies and they said that we were uh we we're actually talking about Kobe Como. But how he was um how he was playing in college and stuff. And one of my friends told me it was like, you know, why you don't you go play? And I was like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I ain't you know, like I didn't know I was good enough to do that. I was like, I mean I'm saying, I don't know that I could do that and it was like, Yeah, it was like, you know, you could probably play track and football if you want. So I ended up talking to Coach Farmer. Coach Farmer was like, Yeah, you know, I could talk to some people for you and then he started lining up meetings and it was like, I didn't really understand the process at the time. And I was just young and just wanted to kind of get it over with. Cause I, when I started my recruiting was during track season, like I was, it was either right before regionals or right after the regional track. So it was late in the school year and I was about to graduate in like a month. So I had all of that. I had, I was going back and forth for the track meet that track practice. And then I was flying, I flew to Iowa to go meet with them. And like, you know, I was just kind of like the place. It didn't seem too bad. And at the time with all, like with just being young and naive and not knowing what was going on, I kind of didn't want to take another trip to another school and not like it. And then have to take another trip to another school, like while I'm supposed to be practicing for my state meet while I'm supposed to be graduating. Like, I just feel like I, maybe I didn't have enough time to do the recruiting process, but, I mean, I'm happy where I ended up. It wasn't wasn't too bad. I had fun. I played football for a year, and it was just just didn't turn out for me where I was at. Uh, 
on the field, did you have some success? I remember reading some stuff, you know, you, you played pretty well towards the end of the season. What was that like? Yeah, we had some success. Um, I played in a, a run-heavy school, so it took a while, you know, like it was to get the th- like uh, to get the ball thrown and all. But I ended up being bowl MVP of the, um, our bowl game, and which I ended up playing against a former high school player, Grady Fagan. I ended up playing in his school, which was pretty fun. Probably I ended up winning, which is like funny because I won the MVP of that game, but the reason I feel like I won MVP was because the first time I felt comfortable all year, I had people from where I lived watching me. I got new people, which, you know, shouldn't make a difference. But at that time, it was just like I was so comfortable that game. I had seen familiar faces before the game. I was out there like people. I, like, I didn't get to spend a whole lot of time with them, but I see them. I knew, you know, new people that were going to be at the game. And it just, it ended up working out. I feel like it helped me play better and ended up winning bowl MVP for the game. Now, you said a minute ago, hey, man, I was young. I was naive. I didn't understand how any of this would have worked. If you had to do over again, what would you do different, man? I would, if I could do it all over, I would just ask for help earlier. Like, I would just ask because, I mean, I really didn't. If most, like, my real friends know that. I wasn't going to play football or track for college until a month before school ended. Yeah. Like it never occurred to me that I was good enough to play football. Like, yeah, you know, like you say, like, like you said, it happened so fast that it just, it happens. And then when you like, you know, i never looked at it as an individual thing. It's always a team thing. You know, we won 10 games, we lost two. That doesn't mean that I'm good enough to go play college football. That doesn't mean, you know, it's just in my head, I'm running behind the best old line in the state. What makes me so great when you got the best old line? So it's like, but when you have somebody that's in your corner and telling you, yeah, you know, you might be able to go play college, then I feel like I would have had a longer recruiting season, you know, a recruiting process. And I think that could have been better because I could have went, you know, I didn't really get much scholarship for a person that was, you know, that because I got my scholarship so late in the season. So I didn't, you know, get really a lot of scholarship money. So I think what would have been better would have just been be closer to home, you know. But, you know, you live and you learn. It's all good. There's really nothing wrong with it. I had fun my college season, and that's all I could ask for. I understand that, brother. Now, last question I'm going to have, I know that we've, we've run a little bit long, and I thank you so much for the time. But the last question I'm going to have is if, you know, there's a 11- or 12-year-old little boy from down the Baya or even a little girl, you know, that, that's playing a, a sport and they have aspirations of playing at the college level and they have aspirations of winning championships and doing some of the things that you were fortunate enough to do, what would you tell them? What would you encourage them to do? What would be some of the advice you would give to them to keep them pushing and make sure they maximize their potential? I would just say just keep working and, you know, listen to your coaches. Like sometimes, you know, it might not, you know, it might not always get along with the coach, but you know, most of the time the coach is going to have your best interest and you just have to work like you have to work no matter what you're going to have to put the work in and just have fun with it like you just enjoy it because it's not you know it's not forever like even if you make it to the pros there's going to be a day you know that you're going to look back and just playing with your friends you know even if you like people make it to the pros it's just 
it's not it's never going to be the same as playing with your childhood friends playing with the people that you grew up with the people that you go to school with like if you want to play college you just have fun you just work hard and of course you have to do the schoolwork schoolwork comes first if you don't do schoolwork you'll never make it to the college level and it just comes with the territory well look brother i thank you so much for the time and uh we're gonna do this again soon okay I appreciate you, brother. Yes, appreciate you having me. Yes, sir. Oh, my goodness. I've got the free songs. That was a wonderful 40-plus minutes with Rusty. We thank him so much for the time. Let's catch a quick commercial break. When we get back, we are going to wrap up the show, give a quick sports update, and then we'll put a pin in it on this Casey's Corner podcast episode. We'll be right back after this break. And this break will allow me to tell you guys that I'm doing this Casey's Corner podcast for you, our readers and our listeners at the LaFouche Gazette. Um, I'm doing this 100% for you to give you guys an opportunity to have a little peace of mind and a little bit of normalcy during this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but I also want your input into the things we talk about. So if there's a guest you'd like me to get, let me know. I'll try my darndest to have them on. If there's a topic you'd like me to talk about, let me know, and I'll do my darndest to inform myself and educate myself on that topic. If there's a team that you want to reminisce about or a game or anything of that sort, let me know. We'll make it happen here on the Casey's Corner Podcast. I want to thank Coach Don Rodrigue for joining us earlier in the show. I want to thank Rusty Bourne for joining us in the last segment. This is the Casey's Corner Podcast here on LaFoucheGazette.com. If you like our show and you, you know you want to get more of us, find us on iTunes. Subscribe there. It's the easiest place to get our show. Instead of having to you know wait for me to post a link or whatever, if you're a subscriber, we'll send the show right to your phone, right to your iPad, whatever device you listen to. You won't have to do any work. We'll do all the work for you. So find this on iTunes, search Casey's Corner. It'll be the first thing that pops up. Click on the logo of me with you know my baseball cap and my beard, and uh, we'll rock and roll. So we'll give you a sports update, and then we'll sign off on this long weekend that we hope everyone is enjoying. Um, big news, big, big, big news out of the NBA. Um, the NBA is looking to um, announce in the coming days the plan to resume their 2020 regular season. Um, it looks like the remainder of the season will be played in Orlando at Disney's uh, Wide World of Sports Complex in Orlando, Florida, uh, where the league is going to create a literal bubble where, you know, teams and, and, you know, the personnel and the players and coaches will be able to use those hotels and those arenas and, and you know, be able to finish the season. There are plans that are being floated around. Some plans involve having every team in the league there. Some plans involve having, you know, just 20 teams there and just chopping off the bottom, you know, 12 or 10, 12 teams in the standings, whatever it may be, 10 teams in the NBA's case. Um, I don't necessarily have a preference either way. I just want us to get the postseason. Um, selfishly, as a Rockets fan, before the pandemic, the Rockets were slumping a little bit. Um, so they kind of fell off in the standings a little bit. I would like to see eight to 10 games for them to maybe be able to better their position. Um, but that's me just being a fan, being purely selfish. If, you know, we jump right into the playoffs, you know, Hey, may, you know, it's the same for everybody. May the chips fall, you know, where they may, so to speak. Um, but I think that, uh, another thing that, that we could really look to, um, there are some of the plans and proposals that are being floated by the NBA that are kind of goofy and kind of quirky. And I saw one of them where you'd have postseason would be group play, you know, almost like the World Cup. Um, I saw, you know, 
some formulas where there would be small single elimination tournaments for the 7 through 10 seeds to decide the final two playoff teams on each conference. And um, I really think that the NBA should probably explore looking at some of those things. Like, I think that, you know, if you do this in normal times and it doesn't work out, fans are going to, you know, make fun of you and they're going to rip into you. Uh, But I think everybody right now sort of understands and realizes that it's a weird time. And no matter what you do, it's going to be weird and it's going to be awkward and it's going to feel different. So why not experiment with something that you may never get another chance to experiment with? Um, so, you know, if you want to add, you know, playoff teams and have the, the single elimination tournament like we talked about, go for it. Try it. You know, the worst thing that could happen is it doesn't work and people don't like it. But I don't think that fans are ever going to say, yeah, no, we don't want any single elimination tournament. You know, fans love March Madness because of the unpredictability of it. So if you tell me now that, you know, we have a situation where we would see four different play in games where it's every game is like a game seven winner go home. I don't know anyone in the world who wouldn't want to see that. So I, I think that experimenting and and you know trying different things out, throwing things at the wall, seeing what sticks, it is a good thing. And it's a great opportunity for the league right now. And if it were me, um, I think that, that they're they're waiting too late. You know, the plans are that they're gonna come back to action in late July. I would like to see them try to come back in early July. Um, you know, baseball is probably gonna beat them back. By, by early July, or excuse me, by late July, we're going to be talking about NFL training camps and everything. So I actually think this is going to be a missed opportunity to not get back a little bit sooner, and they're going to lose some of the shine that they could have otherwise had. And instead of, you know, having the spotlight all along, they're going to be sharing it with MLB. They're going to be sharing it with the NFL and competing against those sports in many ways. And I think that it's going to be a missed opportunity. But I do know this, and anyone who is, has watched this show, or watched the show, who has listened to this show, um, could tell you that um, I'm all in. I, I truly believe in my heart of hearts that this year's NBA playoffs are going to be tremendous. Um, and I was so much looking forward to them before this all started. You've got so many storylines. Right now, in the NBA's Eastern Conference, your, your one through eight playoff matches matchups would be the Bucks versus the Magic, the Raptors versus the Nets, the Celtics versus the 76ers, the Heat versus the Pacers. Who doesn't want to watch Boston and the 76ers in a first-round series? That'd be tremendous. Who doesn't want to watch the Raptors and the Nets knowing that Kevin Durant may well come back and may play in that series? And then you go to the West. You've got Lakers versus Grizzlies, Clippers versus Mavericks, Nuggets versus Rockets, Jazz versus Thunder. Every one of those series, with the exception of the Lakers and the Grizzlies, could be you know somewhat of a coin toss. And I know you're laughing and saying, oh, man, the Clippers and the Mavericks, really? There's only four games that separate those teams. Who's to say Luka Doncic doesn't have the series of his life and goes off and goes crazy and, you know, lifts Dallas past the Clippers in an upset? No one's going to know how this is going to all go because no one knows the shape that these guys are in. No one knows the work that anyone's been putting in during the downtime. And I think that this would be a time now more than ever that, you know, we would maybe see something crazy happen. And if we have the play-in tournament where, you know, we, we invite two additional playoff teams, then guess what? We've got a single elimination tournament game between the Nets and the Hornets in the East and then between the Magic and the Wizards in the East. That would be fun. In the West, you've got a single elimination tournament game between the Mavericks and the Pelicans and then between the Grizzlies and the Blazers. That would be fun. So, you know, I don't want to, um, you know, beat a, a dead horse here. I know I say this all the time. But, man, the NBA is missing an opportunity if they don't get back. 
They have to finish this season. There's so much intrigue, and I'm glad to hear that the enthusiasm is there and that it looks like we're going to see some basketball before the end of the summer. Changing gears a little bit, um, the SEC, again, I talked about this a little bit in the last show. They, they've announced that uh, they're going to allow students back on campus, student-athletes back on campus on June the 8th. That'll be the date that you know guys will be able to start getting some work in again. LSU had previously said that they would welcome guys back on June the 1st, but the SEC said, hey, hold on, let's wait an, an extra week. June the 8th will be the first date. Um, so that'll be when, you know, Miles Brandon and the guys will be able to get some wind sprints and maybe a little seven on seven and different things like that where they could, you know, get rolling and get ready for the year. Um, and I, I, I talked about this in the last show. Um, I, I think that, you know, that there's um, a good um, – it, it, it's, it's understandable that, you know, maybe a parent of a player at the high school level would be concerned about their kid going back and lifting weights and being around their teammates in big bunches again. I understand that. But at the college level, I think that there's no question that, you know, the facilities um, and the resources at the college level are such to where that LSU workout room, that LSU team facility, uh, that Alabama team facility, that Alabama workout room, that Auburn workout room, that University of Florida workout room, Ohio State, USC, whatever it may be, those are going to be some of the safest places in the world. And I saw a video recently. LSU has a machine that at the end of every day, they could blow fog into their workout room. And this fog, whatever it is, it disinfects the entire building um, without anyone having to do anything. And, you know, it's not harmful to, you know, you know breathe in. You could, it's like a smoke machine, but it, it cleans up the equipment instantly. Um, they've got the money. They're going to have these big fancy geothermal thermometers where they're going to be able to check your body temperature to every part of your body. And if you have something, they're going to know about it first. And that's the safest place in the world to be. I don't think that there's any question college athletics are going to go off without a hitch. And I think they should go on as scheduled because the country needs them. Tomorrow on Sunday, we've got a big showdown golf matchup between Tiger Woods and Peyton Manning versus Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady. Sign me the F up for this. Everyone who knows me knows I'm a big Tiger Woods guy, bigger than big Tiger Woods guy. Um, cannot wait to watch him compete again. He hasn't played competitive golf in months. Um, but more important than any of that, um, anytime you get an opportunity to, to get that banter between you know, he and the other players, it's fun. And then you add Peyton Manning and Tom Brady to the mix Peyton Manning's hilarious. Peyton Manning can make as much money as he wants to make um, working in sports media and doing different things, making commercials, because he's a riot. He's one of the funniest people in the world. Um, so to see him on the golf course, and and I'm a mark for watching these, you know, celebrity pro-ams and different things of that sort, um, because I like to watch guys kind of hit bad shots every once in a while. So I'm curious to see who's the better player between Manning and Brady. Curious to see how that all goes down. Um, I think the format is incredible where they're going to play nine holes of four ball, which will mean that it'll be, you know, whoever scores best on the hole is going to win. They're all going to play the hole to completion. Then it'll be nine holes of alternate shot, which will mean, hey, if Peyton Manning's on the tee and he hits a duck hook 70 yards, then Tiger's going to have to play that next shot. Or vice versa, if Tom Brady hits, you know, a terrible shot and you know puts Phil Mickelson in the woods, Phil Mickelson's going to have to hit that next shot, and and vice versa. If 
if Tiger Woods hits a, a you know a shot two feet to the pin, Peyton Manning's gonna have to go make that two foot putt that you know we would assume Tiger would make, but you know maybe Peyton won't make it. So I think that it's gonna be intriguing TV. They're gonna be mic'd up, socially distancing, and I'm looking forward to it very much. That'll be two o'clock tomorrow on TNT. Before we sign off, we're gonna talk a little bit of professional wrestling. So. I like to talk about wrestling either at the beginning or at the end of a segment because I know there are a lot of folks that listen who are either big into it or who are not into it at all. Um, so I don't want to, you know, make it difficult to where you guys are having to rewind and fast forward in the middle of segments or whatever it may be. So if you're not into wrestling, uh, go ahead and hit stop on your phone and we'll catch you the next time we do a show. Um, no hard feelings. I know that it's a very, you know, desire. Uh, it's a very um, um, acquired taste is what I'm trying to say. Um, and a lot of folks aren't into it. So uh, tonight is the big AEW pay-per-view. And I got a confession to make. Um, I don't watch AEW. And I know that that's weird for uh, a wrestling fan to say. Because they've kind of gotten that golden child status where everything that they do, the fans mark out about it. And are all over social media and talking about how it's the greatest thing in the world and this, that, and the other. They've almost got, you know, like that cult following that it, uh, ECW has and Ring of Honor in some respects had it sometimes. Um, I don't necessarily like what I saw the few times that I watched it. Um, I think that, don't get me wrong, I think that some of the, the matches are incredible. Um, and I think that the storytelling at the broadcast table is incredible jim ross is still very good they've got other good pieces there uh but by and large they're just not quite there star power wise for me to enter to enjoy and be entertained by the entire show um and they're getting there you know i know that they they've added some guys and they're getting there and i'm not you know going to be one that says that AEW sucks or anything like that but i don't think that's the case they just at this place in my wrestling fan hood um they don't have enough guys that i recognize and identify with yet for me to comfortably be able to say okay yeah i'm gonna carve my wednesday night out and watch this um they're getting there and competition is good for wrestling so i hope that they have a wonderful pay-per-view i hope that they continue to grow i hope they continue to sign talent but i'm just not all the way there yet and for me it's almost like soccer and what i mean by that is i've got a small group of my friends who are huge hardcore AEW fans. That's all they talk about. Just like I've got a group of my friends who are huge hardcore soccer fans, and that's all they talk about. And I'm just not all the way interested in either one yet. And I, you know, I'm hopeful that someday I'll be there with them in that group chat, talking and you know, yakking it up. But I'm just not quite ready yet. So hopeful that AEW has a good show. I'm not quite there, and um, you know, I, I'm ready to. To see a little more, but I'm not all the way committed to say that I'm, I'm a mark on that level yet. WWE is going to be having you know just their regular old Raw and SmackDown events until June the 14th when they have their Backlash pay-per-view. The entire card has not been announced yet, but we got you know, kind of the meat and potatoes of the card has been announced. Um, Randy Orton will be taking on Edge, Drew McIntyre versus Bobby Lashley, Braun Strowman versus The Miz, and Morrison in a handicap match. And then Asuka will be taking on either Charlotte Flair, Natalia, or Nia Jax. Um, a couple of things. Um, I absolutely hate that the WWE is billing Edge and Orton 
as a match that might be the best wrestling match ever. Um, that's a huge, lofty claim. And when you make that type of claim going in, you're setting yourself up for failure. Um, because now, boy, you better live up to that. If you just have a regular old C-grade, three-and-a-half, four-star match that on any other pay-per-view would have been a phenomenal, fine match, when you bill it as the best, possibly the best wrestling match ever, I just think that there's nowhere to go from there. And those two guys are both older, both kind of a little slower than what we've seen 10, 50 years ago. And if you're making that claim, you better deliver. And I'm not talking about no movie match. I'm not talking about no, you know, match that looks like the final scene of a Walker, Texas Ranger episode. If you're billing this as a wrestling match and possibly the best wrestling match ever at a company that has hosted, you know, Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels Iron Man matches and has hosted Bret Hart versus Steve Austin and has hosted The Rock versus Steve Austin and Randy Savage versus Ricky Steamboat and all the different wonderful things that they've done in the past and you're making that, you know, walking out on that limb and saying that this is going to be amongst the best ever, you better deliver. And I don't like putting that pressure on a part-time guy who's not been there in forever and a guy whose best days are probably behind him in Randy Orton. So curious to watch that. I don't like that it's being billed that heavily. feels like you're setting yourself up to fail. I think that's a big mistake. Um, the title matches, um, I got to tell you, man, um, I really like what they're doing with Bobby Lashley right now. Um, and I, I think that it's it's unfortunate that he had to waste the last six months wasting his time with Lana um, and that just completely stupid wedding angle and all the different crap that they did to to try to throw dirt on Bobby Lashley but they didn't bury him and now he's come out to the other side and he's stronger than ever he's aligned with MVP an actual mouthpiece who actually has talent unlike Lana um, and I think that uh, now he's in a position to where he could be a viable challenger and I don't think he's going to beat Drew McIntyre and take the title. But if you get, let's say, let's just say that um, if you get the commitment from Brock Lesnar that Brock will come back at SummerSlam, wouldn't you think that a, a Brock Lesnar and Bobby Lashley almost MMA style stiff as crap match uh, between the two guys who are both cage fighters, wouldn't you think that'd be intriguing? I would I would want to watch that. Um, I would also want to watch a Brock Lesnar and Drew McIntyre rematch as well. But I could see a world where they may want to put the title on, on Bobby Lashley. I could see a world where that may be something that they would want to do. I think it's too soon. I don't think it's going to happen yet, like, again, as I said. But I think that he is a serious challenger, unlike the last pay-per-view where no one in the world thought that Seth Rollins was a a serious challenger. I do think that Bobby Lashley could be accepted as a serious threat. Strowman versus Miz and Morrison. I love Miz and Morrison, and it's going to pain me to watch them get destroyed by Braun Strowman. I hate the way that they do this, man. They build up these guys to the moon. They did this to Bray Wyatt. Bray Wyatt was destroying the entire roster. You know, no selling everything that was being done to him. No one was getting any offense. And then he lost to a, a part-time 50-something-year-old guy, Goldberg. Um, and then Goldberg gets squashed by Braun Strowman at WrestleMania, and it, it completely ruined Bray Wyatt for me. Uh, so now they're doing the same thing with Braun Strowman. They're going to build him up. He's going to beat three and four guys at a time. He's going to 
you know, kill everybody on the roster. And then when it comes time to get the belt off of him, they're going to get it off of him in the most unceremonious way. Um, probably with Brock Lesnar coming back at some point and beating him in six seconds or something like that. And then it ruins everything that you've done to get to that point. Um, Miz and Morrison are both going to be capable of making this entertaining. They're two of the most talented heels in the company. They're two of the most talented heels in the last decade of the company. They're going to make this interesting. But I don't like when you build somebody up larger than life because then at some point you do have to make them lose and it just ruins everything that you've done to get to that point. I don't know who Asuka's going to face for the Raw Women's Championship. I hope she loses the belt no matter who she faces. She, She annoys me. Um, I, I don't think it would be Charlotte Flair, maybe Nia Jax. Um, I love Asuka in the ring. I love Asuka when there's fans. She's more entertaining. But all I hear with her in the arena without fans is just someone screaming and yelling and just aggravating the hell out of me. Um, so a little bit less of that would be good. And if we can maybe take the title off of her, that would be great. But I don't think, you know, that they're going to make that move so soon after putting it on her the way that they did. Uh, so that's what's going on in wrestling. Um, I'll be honest with you, man. I was kind of, um, I kind of gotten in a lull um, right when the pandemic had started. Uh, before, even before the pandemic, you know, I hadn't been watching very much. Um, and then right after the whole no crowd stuff started, I had watched and skimmed, but I, it was hard for me to get into it because I thought that the, the, the talent was having a hard time adjusting to there being no fans. Um, but one thing I think is worth noting is the fact that because there are no house shows and all we have is TV, the guys are less beat up. And I think that because of that, the TV, you know, the product on the TV, the matches that are on Raw and on SmackDown are much better, much cleaner because the guys are more fresh. They're, you know, more willing to take big bumps. They're more willing to do different things. And I find myself enjoying the, you know, the, the television product more in the last couple of weeks, the last month than I have in a long time. So, you know, when the fans get back and, and everything like that, I'm looking forward to it. I know that people are kind of down on the current product or whatever it may be, but I challenge them to sit down and actually watch an episode of Raw. I love, you know, that little, I love the fact that we've got factions again. Um, I love the fact that, you know, I love the everything that the, the Andrade group is doing and, you know, all that little, you know, trio there. Um, there there's some entertaining stuff going on. Just got to, you know, tune in and, and watch it. And hopefully, you know, we'll get those audiences back and everybody will be able to get rocking and rolling again so i'm going to make a pick real quick on the old uh, the, the golf matchup tomorrow i'm going to pick tiger and peyton manning to defeat phil and brady i think that uh, it's going to be a little sluggish at first uh everybody's going to be a little rusty i think it's going to be entertaining as heck but give me tiger to get hot on the back nine lead his team to a win I want to thank coach rod rusty born thanks to everybody for listening um i feel weird saying happy memorial day because this is a holiday where we Remember the people who have lost and sacrificed their lives for our country. So it's not really a happy time. But at the same time, those people sacrificed their lives so that we could have freedom to do the wonderful things that we do in America. Go to the beach, you know, spend time with friends and family. Um, So, you know, if you want to do all of those things, please feel free to do so, obviously. Um, but at the same time, remember, take a little bit of time to remember the reason why we're doing this and having this Monday off. And, and if you have small children, take a little bit of time to explain to them as well 
why we're having this extra little you know time for family vacations and everything like that because it's not just you know you know president's day you know where it's kind of a throwaway monday that we have off of work this is you know monday where we're supposed to be remembering the the lives lost of so many heroic americans who allow us to have the freedoms that we have so thanks to everybody for listening subscribe on itunes that's the easiest way to get us um if you want to go to lafougegazette.com and download every episode there feel free to do so it'll work all the same but if you want to do you know bypass that step and just get the episode sent straight to your phone download us on itunes uh you could find us there so have a great long weekend be safe don't drink and drive guys don't do anything stupid i don't feel like having to write about anybody you know this these next couple of days and i most certainly don't want to have to write a tragic story about you know, someone who was killed in a drinking and driving accident. So take care of yourselves. Have a great time. Socially distance. Uh, let's continue to make progress. We're doing the thing. We're going to get back to life as normal before long. And uh, I can't wait to see it. So you guys have a great weekend. Long weekend. Enjoy the time away. Goodbye.